So we're reading tonight from Galatians chapter 2, from verse 11. Paul opposes Peter. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If, while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. When I was a student, I realized I was running short of cash. I'm sure many of us know what that feels like. And I thought, you know, I really got to do something uh, to raise a little bit of money. But I also knew that I needed to kind of keep my head down with my studies and I had various things I wanted to achieve. So I I knew I couldn't kind of go and do a a regular nine to five. And I had a bit of a brainwave. I thought I'm going to buy one of those wooden punting boats and um, I was quite good with my hands, quite good with woodwork, so I thought, I'll buy an old bomb of one, I'll do it up, and then I saw these punt chauffeurs making all this money, taking tourists for day trips, really flexible work, and it's all cash in hand. So this is great. So I bought this old bomb in the winter, and I did it up, and I made it look fantastic, and I, and I kind of put in lovely seats and beautiful rugs, and I had like a boater, straw boater, and, um, and all the patter. So I, I rolled out in the spring on the cam in Cambridge with this punting pole, looking to tout business off of the local bridges. And, and, and I've got to say, I was pretty successful. You know, it was great. It was a lovely boat. On a lovely day, you could get seven or eight rides, take people for an hour up and down the river cam. They had a great time and they paid you great money. So I was loving this enterprise and I was, I was thinking, this is, you know, but it was all good because I was good at punting and I had a lovely boat, and I definitely looked the part. The problem was I didn't have a clue about the history of Cambridge. So, so I started this punting business without actually being able to give a historical tour. And the way I managed that was I just made stuff up as I went along the river. And I picked up little tidbits here and there, you know, from passing other punt chauffeurs. And I just took a little tidbit, elaborated a little bit, kind of increased this, you know, developed the story. And uh, oh, these punters laughing, you know, they were from America or from Asia. They were going to go back there. No one was ever going to know. They would say, I had a fantastic trip on the River Cam with a really expert tour guide. 
It was going really, really well for me. My stories got bigger and bigger as the months went by. I picked up more and more tidbits. I still kept introducing the wrong colleges. I always confused Trinity and Johns and Clare. And actually, I suggested that Girton was on the river when actually it's in fields miles away uh, from central Cambridge. But somehow, I muddled these tours together. But one evening, I'd had a really full day and I was feeling particularly pleased with myself. And I was punting my way back to where I used to tie my boat up. There was a couple of gents who were standing on Trinity Lawn. I did know it was Trinity Lawn at that point. And they said, excuse me, are you, um, are you still for hire? I thought, another, another ride. Great, brilliant. Another fare. Yes, gents, come and take a seat. And so we spent an hour meandering up and down the river camp. I told them my best stories, you know, try to make them laugh. They looked quite amused. And, uh, and as we pulled in on the quayside, one of them turned to me and said, you know, that was one of the most fantastic tours of the camp I've ever experienced in my entire life. And I said, oh, well, thanks so much. I'm so glad you enjoyed yourself. The other one said, yeah, it really was fantastical. And the tone slightly changed. And I said, um, they said, just, just a point. We're going to give you a tip tonight. We're going to give you five pounds. I thought, oh, that's not the best tip I've had. They said, we're going to give you five pounds to buy the guide to punting the river camp the historical guide. And I, and I said, oh, right. They said, yeah, we're both history professors here at Trinity. We just thought it'd be nice to go for a ride on the river, and we've never, ever heard anything quite like it. I felt so humiliated. I told them all of these stories. It was complete junk. You know, I thought it was wonderful, but actually it was a disaster. And, and that's the situation I want to bring to the table tonight. The relationship between truth and love because in a weird way that was the best encounter I could possibly have had at that moment in my life there was I whistling down the wind telling lots of big stories completely unaccountable to people who didn't know anything else people from other countries who'd never been to this site before people who trusted me people who were paying me for a service and I was effectively exploiting them no one was holding me accountable to the truth. But here were two people who knew the truth. They were in my boat and they chose to hold me accountable. But they held me accountable in love. They gave me five of their own pounds in order that I might improve what I was offering the world. You see, love and truth go hand in hand. You know, one of the greatest fears I have for our world today is that truth and love are being uncoupled amongst us. There's a suggestion that you cannot be both truthful and loving, but I want to suggest to you tonight, you cannot be truthful without being loving, and you cannot be loving without being truthful. You know, the truth matters and love matters. This morning we had a little game where we tried to get a child to push a toy car across a table to knock down a packet of Smarties. And they gave it a couple of goes, but without any guidance, the car was going all over the place, everywhere but the target. And then we laid out some track, and we said one side of the track is truth and the other side is love, and we, we had a little shooter, we pressed the button and pow! This little car shot down the middle and knocked over the Smarties first go. Because truth and love go hand in hand and they keep us on track. Do you guys think our world is on track today? 
And if you don't think it's on track, which of those barriers do you think has fallen down? I hear a lot about love. You know, oh, love wins. Love is everything. We're all about love. But I don't hear so much about truth anymore. Suddenly truth is interpretive. And actually, if I really love you, I accept your truth because that's really loving, even if I know you're off course. If my punt uh, chauffeur friends, if my, if my professors of history from Trinity had been loving in today's society, they might have turned to me and said, well, Will, it was a wonderful tour, and your truth is equally valid to my truth. Here's five pounds, go and buy yourself a beer and feel smug about it. Here they would have said, it doesn't matter that this college is actually St. John's College, because you can call it whatever you like, Will. Because truth really doesn't matter here. We just want to be loving. I want you to know that the scripture is filled with challenge. This is the truth, the word of God. It's God breathed. And it's breathed to us tonight in love. Here we've got a really interesting situation. You've got Peter who's leading the church. Jesus put the keys of the kingdom in Peter's hands and said, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my lambs. The keys of the kingdom are in your hands. Here, he's one of the apostles who Jesus was closest to, and he's leading the Jerusalem church, and he's held in great reverence. And everyone's like, oh my, in the Petrine church, this is like the archbishop of the world turning up in Antioch. Now, how are you going to respond to him? Imagine this situation for yourself. How would you respond? Hi, um, Mr. Peter. Uh, how should I? Reverend Peter, Bishop Peter, what should I call you? Uh, can I make you some tea? You're going to love him. But are you going to hold him accountable to the truth? What I find incredible is that Paul who was always in danger of believing himself to be a second-class apostle because he hadn't had a direct encounter with the risen Jesus like the other apostles had. He goes straight in, in verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Oh my goodness, can you imagine that encounter? Excuse me, bishop of the world, Bishop who Jesus placed the keys for the kingdom in, you know, leader of the global church, can I just oppose you right now to your face because you're wrong? Now, socially, immediately we're feeling, oh my goodness, this is so awkward. Earth swallowing me up right now. I don't want to be in this setting. But of the two, Paul seems to know as much, if not more, than any of the other apostles about how significant love and truth are together. You know, it's absolutely essential that there is a change of status here, that Paul doesn't shy away from what the Lord is calling him to. What, what's going on? Well, in verse 12, it says, before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Before certain men came from James. Now, James, brother of Jesus, is also leading a Jewish church. It's probably slightly more Jewish than the Petrine church was. And, and what's happening is that those followers, second-hand disciples from James, have been tracking around, following Paul on his missionary journey, and actually telling the Gentile Christians, who were largely Greeks and Romans, that they needed to get circumcised, or they needed to follow the Levitical laws. 
Now, we know that Peter had been living a Gentile lifestyle. Paul says, look, you're living like a Gentile. You're living amongst the Gentiles. Now, that doesn't mean he was living any sort of licentious lifestyle. He was just basically living a normal lifestyle outside of temple worship. He was living amongst Gentiles, and he hadn't segregated himself. Now, when we think about eating in our society, we don't automatically think, oh, well, um, oh, he's just, you know, he's got a different sort of diet. He's he's eating somewhere else. Uh, That's not the way that society worked. If you didn't eat with others, that was a social statement, which meant complete ostracization. So it was the deepest offense to say, no, I'm not eating with you. Because to eat with others was to demonstrate your fellowship and communion with them. And so it was a great statement of your accord, of your unity. So what's happening here? Well, these men came from James's kind of group and started leaning on the Petrine group and on Peter himself and saying, you know what, you're slipping into sin. You need to eat alone and follow the Levitical food laws again. You need to be holy and set apart. So Paul is bringing truth. And the fundament of this truth is actually that, that they've misconstrued the gospel again. You know, there couldn't have been a more important statement to challenge than this one. It sounds odd. Well, you're eating apart. Can I just oppose you to your face? It sounds a bit over the top. But actually, this, the, the very essence of the gospel was at risk at this particular point. Because either Jesus died for sinners... And everyone needed to be saved by grace, not by works. Or actually, some people were saved by the old Levitical laws, and they could get into heaven another way. Paul's saying, if that's true, all of these men and women stand condemned. So the gospel itself, truth itself, is is on the line. But Paul doesn't back away. He doesn't shy away from the conflict. He steps in and he opposes Peter face to face and he sets up a classic Pauline straw man argument. Paul's brilliant at this. He's like a classic lawyer. Imagine, you know, if I start eating like this, of course, Jesus died for nothing. Or we can sin all the more. No, absolutely not. You know, Jesus died in order that we might be made righteous and righteous we are. He brings truth. I think we can learn so much from Paul tonight. I think we want, we want to press into what Paul's bringing and see the challenge and say, actually, look, we need to press into this ourselves. Because in Hebrews 12, 6, it says, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son and daughter. The gospel is not soft. It's not easy and it's not permissive. He doesn't say that all truths are equal. Paul doesn't say to Peter, hey, I know you're part of the Jewish group with your own customs. I know, you're, you, know you dine differently. I just want to affirm your difference. Go and eat with the Jews and do your own thing. But I'm going to hang with the Gentiles and we're going to do something that's equally valid. Can you imagine that conversation today? I can. What Paul says is, actually, if you go off with that group and start eating with them, this group stands condemned. Can you imagine the Gentile brothers and sisters who've been told that Jesus died for them and it was by grace that they were saved, not by works? These people who were uneducated in the Levitical laws, they were looking across at the Jewish group going, oh my goodness, I've got to get circumcised? 
Not only that, I need to understand all of these ancient laws and what I can eat and what I can't eat and how I need to address things within the temple. I need to get to the temple. I need to become Jewish. How can I do that? Paul's saying, actually, it matters what you do. It might not directly affect me, but it directly affects truth. One of the great challenges I believe we're facing is our individualization and isolation from one another. It's like if your truth doesn't affect me, I've got no right to challenge your truth. Only if you oppress me can I challenge the truth that you're you're bringing. But what if the truth that you're bringing oppresses others? Paul's seeing the Gentile Christians and he's thinking, my goodness, I've got to say something. How can I respond? So Paul's interaction with Peter reveals much about the sonship of both apostles. And what we see in this is, you know, is, is, is a call to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. We don't just, uh, if you like, challenge in a way without love. We challenge in a way with love. And I want to ask you a, a few questions today specifically uh, about the way in which you receive or engage with conflict. The first question I guess I'm asking is, are you ready to receive the truth? When I think about Peter's interactions with Paul, he's come to this setting you know, with quite a status. And, and no doubt, there's a lot of sycophantic fans around Peter going, here is Peter. You know, make way for Peter. Peter is important. But I believe Peter came to that meeting with Paul with a heart that was ready to receive truth. And I want to ask you how ready you are to receive truth in church. How ready are we to be discipled by others? I did some teaching in a place of work, my previous place of work, and it was quite challenging, I admit. But what I found remarkable was the strength of the reaction against the truth. And it was literally, oh my goodness, I mean, thanks very much, but actually, I'm doing this. I remember thinking, well... (laughs) Okay, You're, you know, you've got a right to do that, but it doesn't mean it is right. But the sense was, how dare you try and challenge me with your truth? So how, do we, how are we not ready with the truth? The first one is that we're aggressive. So one of the greatest ways to defend against truth is to fight back. When you receive the truth, you just flip it back at that person and say, but let me tell you about your life about the choices that you've made. And I'm going to devalidate the truth teller. What I love about this passage is it doesn't say anywhere that Peter said, well, Paul, you're not really a proper apostle. You know, I know you weren't with Jesus because I was with Jesus. And you just had this encounter on the Damascus Road, which is a second-hand encounter. And and you didn't actually see Jesus. You just heard a voice from heaven and, and, and lightning and were blinded. Maybe God doesn't really like you that much. He doesn't say that. He doesn't come back aggressive. Do you come back aggressive when you feel that someone is criticizing you or challenging you? Or do you assume that challenge is automatically criticism? Some of us sort of think, oh my goodness, who gave you the right to speak truth into my life? I just want to be really clear right now, if you're sitting in this church building and you count yourself as a member of St. Dionys Church, you have given us the right collectively to speak truth into your life. If you don't like it, I suggest you unmember yourself. 
know, that's why you're here. You're here because we're not here to warm the seats or just to be lovely and kind to one another, although that's a key part of what it means to be a Christian. We are here to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. How's that going for you right now? If you don't think it's going well enough, maybe it's not it's because you haven't opened yourself to challenge. You haven't opened yourself fully to truth. Now we're trying to work here on formation and we're saying to one another, how can I actually look more like Jesus? That requires work. In my life, that requires significant work. And I have so many blind spots against myself. How will I know how I need to change if I'm not accountable and welcoming to the challenge of others? The weird thing about aggressive responses to truth are that we defend ourselves initially to the first attack. And over time, those attacks become less and less frequent as people back away from what we perceive to be attacks. But what if they were never attacks? What if they were generous gifts of love? I want to help you. I, I see God's potential within you. I want to see it released. I want to welcome God's transformation in your life. So there's an aggressive response, firstly. Then secondarily, there's the defensive response. Now, the defensive response is, is actually not the aggressive response of fight back. The defensive response is, is the prickly and now I'm silent and avoidant response. Now, this is much more common in the church. You know, is that someone offers truth to us and then we suddenly vaporize and sit in a different seat every week. You know, we've, we've always sat over here, but now we're sitting over here. You know, we, we are avoidant of that person who brought challenge. But, but here, we, we don't see avoidance. There's obviously a huge discourse that takes place and, and, and the conversation goes on and on and on between Peter and Paul. And Paul's really emphatic about why this is so significant. You don't, don't get the impression at all that Peter was out of the conversation. Thanks, thanks Paul, but I think I'm going to move away now. If we're defensive to the gospel's transformation in our life, we will not be transformed. The irony is that this is God's word of love into our hearts, and, and we want to receive that love. Truth and love go hand in hand. We cannot receive truth without love, and we cannot receive love without truth. Like we have to say love is more than just being affirmed in the mistakes we're already making. Now, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. And I've been in quite a few churches. But I want to tell you that I haven't received great challenge. And the reason I haven't received great challenge is largely my fault. Because I've not put myself in the way of challenge. I've not welcomed others' challenge. But also culturally I recognize that we struggle to be honest and loving. So the third outworking is what are called grateful. In 2 Timothy 2, 14 to 16, it says, correctly handle the word of truth. Now, this is the word of truth. But there's a way of correctly handling truth. And if you're someone who looks willing to receive truth, you're correctly handling it. There's no great um, mystery to correctly handling a word of truth other than saying, thank you. Now, this morning I was up here and uh, I, was, I got six water bombs and I was getting the children to throw, me, throw them at me in different ways. And I had a, I had a weapon at one, and that was a nightmare because I got completely soaked and sort of stabbed it and exploded in my face. And uh, I, had a def I, had a, I had a spiky glove to defend myself from another one, which was also pretty disastrous because that also exploded. And then I had this lovely, sweet little girl came up to me with Joe, and I said, look, 
this is what it looks like to receive a word of truth. And she said, this is the truth. And I went, thank you. Because actually, if you're ready to receive a word of truth, it will transform your heart, it will transform your life, and it will transform the lives of those around you. Formation is about saying welcome to the word of truth. You know, I, I remember being terrified of prayer ministry. I was really like, I was a really bad Christian, I've got to be honest. I mean, there aren't bad Christians, there are saved Christians. Well, there are saved Christians and bad Christians. I was a saved one, but a bad one. Um, so that means that I was redeemed and holy in God's sight, but I definitely wasn't redeemed and holy in anyone else's. And that's a, that's a bad place to be. But I remember really avoiding prayer ministry in my church when I was just kind of coming to faith. Because I was terrified that the Lord was going to give a revelation of my disastrous lifestyle to the person who was praying for me. I didn't want a word of truth. I didn't want anyone to know the truth. I was like, please don't know about me. Please, Lord, don't reveal anything about me. I just want to be anonymous and kind of impervious to any sort of truth bomb. Maybe that's you tonight. You're sitting there thinking, oh, that sounds just like me. But if that is like you, I want to tell you that God has sown incredible seeds in your life, in your heart, and they're for, they're for a fruitful harvest. Don't let them just be seeds. Let them bear fruit. Like, let them be received and watered and grown. And I believe God will do an incredible work through your life. It's like, I want that. So three things. We can be in response to a word of truth. We can be aggressive, we can be defensive, or we can be grateful. And um, I, I want to just really, really encourage you tonight to try and be grateful for that word. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Because when we receive a word of truth, we find sanctification. So the first point in generality is that truth points to love. When we receive truth, we know it points to love because it points to transformation and our betterment. Truth does not point to criticism, to being chastised, to being humiliated, because truth ultimately comes from God. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, 1, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's amazing, isn't it? The goal of our instruction is love. So truth points to love, and love points to truth. You can't have it one way without the other. Love points to truth, and truth points to love. So I want to ask you secondarily how you give truth. Because it's really important that we prepare our hearts to receive truth. Those three things, are we aggressive, are we defensive, or are we grateful? But equally... How are you at giving truth? Because I want everyone in the room today to receive truth like I received truth from that little girl today. Here's the truth. But I know that some of us will get you know, the receipt of truth like another boy who was over here who threw the truth at me at about 100 miles an hour. It slammed into my body rather painfully. You know, the way we give truth is also foundational and rooted in whether or not we understand that truth and love go hand in hand. Who said, I'm just being honest? Has anyone heard that phrase? I hate that phrase. That phrase is, I've weaponized the truth and now I'm using it to cut you down. I'm just being honest. That throwaway phrase of how can I hurt you with this? You know, our world not only struggles to see, to receive the truth, with a sense of generosity, 
it, it also struggles to give the truth with any kind of kindness. You don't need to spend three seconds on Twitter to realize this is true. You search any, st- you know, England football. Look, look through, the, scroll through. I mean, you could not find a more sort of filthy and furious array of truth anywhere in the world at the moment. You know, this is my truth. You're terrible. You're rubbish. You should. We don't know how to do conflict anymore because we think that giving the truth is just hurting someone and running away. That's not truth giving. That's just hurting someone and running away. You know, how do we give the truth? I, I think there are two sorts of people, lovers and fighters. Sounds simple. It is simple. Some people like me love to be loved. We love the love. We just want to love everyone. Everything's love. And other people are really great. Just, they just, they're all truth. They're just truth, truth, truth. They're all about truth. And the love people find it really hard to receive the truth. And the truth people seem to be really, find it really difficult to give the truth in love. You know, they just throw it out there. And, and, and there are three responses. There's, typically, we, you know, the first one is, is, is the withdrawing the truth. This sounds convoluted, but actually the first thing to do is, you don't even deserve the truth. I'm not even going to tell you. I'm just going to roll my eyebrows and go, oh, here we go again. You know, I'm not willing to give you the truth. When we, many of us here, we sort of, we can sit back and think, well, I'm not going to bring discipline. I'm not going to bring truth. I'm not going to bring challenge. That's someone else's job. Or actually, I don't even deserve it. Or I'm just going to let you fall and I'm going to watch it happen. Now, so often we withdraw or withhold truth from one another. Or socially we're thinking, oh, this is just so embarrassing. I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to wait till they come to me, by which time it's kind of too late. You know, we've got permission to bring the truth. Don't hide it from one another. Don't withdraw the truth. Be forthcoming and be known as someone who wants to bring truth, but be known as someone who wants to bring truth in love. The second type, as I've said already, is the aggressive type. I want to bring the truth. The truth's all that matters, and I'm going to throw the truth at you so you remember that it hurts. The trouble about being aggressive with the truth is it can't be received. The, the, the people who are trying to receive truth cannot receive it into their hearts and be transformed by it because it's just too bitter, it's just too painful. And so arguments and discord spiral out of hand because our attempt to offer what is ultimately supposed to be loving and honest just becomes a way of hurting. Uh, and, and finally, there's, there's truth offered in genuine love. You know, what we say is important. How we say what we say is also important. Now, Paul, if you notice, you know, it's pretty direct language. He opposed Peter to his face, but that's also really important. He opposed him to his face. We're like, oh my goodness, you got him right in his face. Yeah, that was really good because he did it face to face. In our world, it's a nasty WhatsApp message. You know, or it's an email sent at the dead of night. I'm going to complain about all the stuff you've done wrong. I want to invite you. Don't do that. Do what Paul did. Oppose your friend face to face. Look them in the eyes and say, you know I really love you, but I just want to say I don't think that's right for you or good for you. Or actually, I think you're selling yourself short. Or can I just be really honest? In love. See them face to face. I opposed him 
face to face. Set up like Paul did a straw man argument. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. Work out the argument and help your friend to understand the direction that they're going in. Like saying that is wrong is not as helpful as saying, if you walk down that road, I believe that this is what will happen. Do you want to walk down that road? Can you imagine Peter's response to Paul as he looks out at all of these Gentile Christians who are eating, who are all his brothers and sisters in Christ, and he's looking at another group of Jewish believers over there who are eating alone. I wonder if his heart melted within his chest. And he thought, you know what? Paul, you're so right. I was never justified by my ability to fulfill Levitical laws. I'm a fisherman from Galilee. Like, you're absolutely right. Why is there division in the body right now? I'm promoting division. Everyone's looking at me as the leader, and I'm actually promoting division. I've got to be unifying. I want to bring you all together. Hey, everyone, Jewish group, Gentile group, everyone merge together, fill up all the empty spaces. Let's have a really nice meal together. Paul, my friend, has helped me understand the truth tonight and reminded me in love that actually we're one. We're one. You know, it's a simple message. I want to bring it into land just about here. So if the band want to come up, we're going to do... Are we going to do a song, Tim, before we do communion? Are we going straight into communion? Amazing. How privileged we are to be going straight into communion because here is a sign of our unity. But can I just implore you tonight on a personal note, don't make the mistakes that I've made. When you get old, you find yourself saying this stuff more and more often. It's quite strange. You sort of say, please don't do what I did. Because it, it really matters. It matters to me. Um, it matters to Tim and Joe. It matters to us as a team. You know, we want, we, me and Laura and Tim, we have an SLT tomorrow morning. We'll be talking about your formation. We'll be talking about your transformation. And we'll be saying things like, if only we could build deeper and richer community where people feel more free to lead one another into deeper faith in Jesus Christ and be honest with one another in a loving way. That's what we'll be saying. Well, I predict that's what we were saying. We're definitely saying it now because I've basically teed it up. <laughs> Can I just make one little, lay down one little emotional experiment for everyone tonight? Is, is to actually agree with a friend in your life group or in your formation group or in your prayer triplet that you're going to be a little bit more honest in love. And can you give each other a little bit of feedback about how you feel about the feedback that you've received so far and I'd imagine this going with something like hey I just want guys you, you can be honest with me but also I found it a little bit difficult when you sent me like 19 verses about sexual sin the other night on a text message at midnight that um that that made me feel a little condemned so could we just do it face to face you know however it goes for you but could you just in your groups ask each other give each other permission to be a little bit more honest and a little bit more kind. And I reckon that that is going to sow seeds for a bigger piece of work that the Spirit of God is going to do amongst us. And when we share the meal tonight, let's share in unity through what Paul says in closing. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, that's our body, 
I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I did not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. We are one in Christ. He is truth and love. And when he died on the cross, he brought the truth of God's love to us and his love enabled us to receive the truth of God's fatherhood over our lives.